With all that said, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, uh, I pray that this morning would be a reminder of the power of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to remember all that you can do and, and remind ourselves of, of the power to change lives. Lord, I pray that as we come to this text, that you would help us to hear and to understand. I pray, Lord, there, if there is any blindness, that you would help us to see, that you would cast light into this situation. And I pray, Father, you would help me to get out of the way. I pray, Father, you would help me to communicate clearly what you would have me to say this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we return to the subject of racism and the gospel. Now, uh, we, we have kind of been disjointed here. We haven't been doing them back to back. But uh, what we're talking about here is the historical hostility uh, that has been found in this country as it concerns relationships uh, between ethnic groups. Uh, whether we're talking about Native Americans or we're talking about the uh, Atlantic slave trade or we're talking uh, about even the current topic of immigration, America has a, a, an interesting and unique and checkered history on this subject. And we, we talked about two weeks ago, uh, we went through Genesis and we showed that when it comes to a problem like this, that the world does not have the wisdom either to diagnose the problem, nor does the world around us, the unbelieving world around us, have the ability to provide a cure to this problem. In fact, one of the things we learned two weeks ago is that often it is the introduction of the unbelieving world's wisdom that will aggravate this issue. And so we, we talked about that, but we have to realize that we can't just get up here and say, here's what's wrong with the world, here's what's wrong with the problem. We have an obligation of, as believers to step into that conversation and provide the wisdom of God, even on subjects like this. Now, the book of Philemon isn't about racism. In fact, if you wanted a one-word summary of the book of Philemon, which you can do because it is such a small book, that word would be reconciliation. About the intertwining of relationships. And about how those dynamics work. And we have in this account three men. Three men who are very distinct from each other socially, very distinct from each other, even in their place in the church. We have the crossing of authority with, with someone with privilege and blessing and riches and, and then crossing that with a history and uh, an issue of justice in that time. Now, the unbelieving world around us says that if you introduce authority and, and privilege and you introduce that to, to people who perhaps live on the margins, the unbelieving world today preaches the idea that what you will get is discrimination, what you will get is oppression. But what we'll find here, hopefully, in Philemon is that when you introduce or inject the gospel into those things, the result is dramatically different. So what I want to do this morning is I just kind of want to take you through each of the characters in this book, uh, each of the persons in this book, and, and deal with them individually and then see what they can teach us and then make special application, particularly to the issue of racism. 
The first number one, the first uh, person we're going to talk about is Paul the Apostle. I would label the first point this way, an appealing, A-N, an appealing apostle. An appealing apostle. Let me start by reminding you what that title means to be an apostle. It means to stand in someone else's place, not just as a representation of that person, but to carry with you the same authority as that person. This is why as a New Testament church, when Paul writes under the authority of his, or with the authority of being an apostle, we treat his words as if they were from the mouth of Christ himself. Because he is an apostle. And so, therefore, there was a sense of authority that he carried. Peter, James, John, all carry this type of authority. But let us also point out that we can go through our New Testament and all these letters of Paul, and we can see that Paul understands that he has that authority, and at times will use it. Particularly in places, as Paul was constantly writing letters to, to answer questions or deal with problems or, or, or disorganization, he would, he would use that authority as an apostle. He would command people to do certain things. He would tell them to do certain things and have an expectation that he would be obeyed. Paul was not afraid of using that authority. And the third thing I would like to point out here is this, is that we, we have recorded for us the calling of Paul as an apostle. We know that at this time, as we have talked about, there were men who walked around claiming to be apostles. There were those who claimed to know what Christ was trying to treat, uh, teach. Paul will refer to his calling and his, uh, in his bringing in or his commission as an apostle And so we know that it is genuine. We know then that he carries this authority. We know that he uses this authority. And he expected his authority to be uh, submitted to. But that brings us to the text. If you go down to verses 8 through 10, essentially what Paul says here, Though I am bold enough to command you to do what is required, I instead appeal. He even says and defines that appeal. He says, for love's sake, I appeal appeal. What Paul is saying here is that I have and understand that I have the authority to command you to do what I'm about to ask you to do. I have the authority and the expectation that you would obey to that command and I'm not uh, and I'm not not commanding you because I'm afraid. In fact, I have the boldness to command you, but I don't want to do that. And this situation is as I want to appeal. We find out that we clearly see that Paul uh, has authority in this situation. We see later in the text that, that Philemon even owed Paul. Paul clearly had a significant influence here because we're talking about the church in Colossae. We have a, a letter to that church. We have uh, people around Philemon being greeted, uh, not only Philemon himself. And so we know that he had a tremendous influence into the situation. But yet he pulls back and instead of commanding, instead of pouring out that influence, he stops and he says, I would rather in this moment, for love's sake, appeal. Let me just try to help you understand what I'm trying or trying to get you to go. Uh, think of the President of the United States. Here's a man with power, authority, and influence. And uh, this is a man who controls uh, the Department of Defense, the military, can influence political appointments. At his height or his political height, he can uh, make enemies and friends at the turn of a dime. He has tremendous influence in the infrastructure of the politics of the time. 
And over the course of our American history, we have seen men, and we know men, have used this power, authority, and influence to get as many women into bed as possible. We have seen men who have used this power, authority, and influence to, uh, to make a lot of money. We have seen men use this power, authority, and influence to spy on their political opponents. We have seen men use this power, authority, and influence in, in order to put upon a people ideas that they did not want. We, we see, if we pull back even into history and other nations, that it seems to be the, the, the default setting of men who get to a place of power, influence, and authority to find some way to abuse it. But that's not what Paul does here. Paul has that kind of a power. He has that kind of authority. He has that kind of influence. But he pulls back and instead appeals. Now, it was Paul's practice of doing this that would cause the Corinthian church to question whether or not he was even an apostle. For an authority figure, for somebody with that kind of influence, to pull back and instead of bring the hammer down, offer a hand of mercy and grace, they thought it was weak. They had no concept of authority being done that way. So we asked the question, so why does Paul work that way? Why, why in some cases does he say, look, I'm an apostle, here's what I command you to do, I expect to be obeyed. And why does he here pull back that authority and instead appeal. And the reason for it is this, because authority has always been, uh, it, it has been the purpose of authority. Let me put it that way. The purpose of authority is to display in that authority the character of God. doesn't matter what kind of authority you have, a king, a mayor, a president, a governor, a police officer, pastor, parent, or a, a husband... What kind of influence you have, the single purpose of authority is to display in that authority the character of God. And so therefore, that means as believers, when we see somebody take authority and abuse that authority, abuse that influence, it is in fact the sin of blasphemy, of representing God as he is not. And so we should we, we should find ourselves uh, resistant towards that kind of authoritative leadership because all that is, is tyranny. Let me maybe put it this way. We confess as believers that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not just a personal confession, that is a cosmic one. We say that he is Lord over all. He is Lord uh, above all from the heavens to the earth to the north, the, the south, the east, and the west, all the way uh, to the center of the earth, to the farthest reaches of the universe. He is Lord over those who admit it and those who do not. And what do we know about this Lord? We know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We know that he desired to gather his people under his wings like a hen, her chicks. We know that he taught with authority and pled with grace. Any person who has a position of authority and does not know how to both use that authority and set it aside in moments where they need to show mercy and grace. All that person is, is a tyrant. 
And the clear reality is, is that we, we know this. Some of us, are, as, as believers, we are beginning to experience this as we read the news and we see an, another foolish resolution passed by a city council. We, we, uh, we see another governor sign, into, sign a, a foolish law into place. We, we become anxious as we hear of another court ruling, all which are using authority to drive out the gospel of Christ. But let us remember something. That for decades, our African-American brothers and sisters went through the same process as they had to deal with city councils making foolish rulings and governors signing foolish laws and the horrific results of certain court cases. As believers, we should never, ever be complacent with authority that only knows how to use authority and can never offer a hand of mercy and grace. So the first person we see here is the Apostle Paul, become an an appealing apostle. Number two this morning, I wanted you to look at Philemon himself. Number two, a serving master. A serving master. Verses 1 through 7, we learn a number of things about Philemon here. We know he has a personal relationship with Paul. Clearly, the letter is personal as Philemon is addressed in, in several of his family, or two of his family members here. We see in the text that this church in Colossae is meeting in Philemon's house. Paul says, I give thanks for you, Philemon, for your aggressive activity in the ministry. And then lastly, he says, also, I give thanks for the fact that the saints are refreshed by you. Now, that word refreshed is used in other places to refer to monetary gifts. We know Paul talks about being refreshed uh, by monetary donations. we're, We're also likely talking here that he has literally refreshed them by providing shelter and food, perhaps to those who were traveling and ministering. This was a man with significant influence this is a man who of great spiritual maturity this is a man who clearly had money we might even call him a man of privilege now we know onesimus the the other person in this story was in bonded servitude to philemon what that meant was that legally onesimus uh it was to work for philemon and philemon in response would provide food and shelter But from a Roman legal position, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. It is this characteristic, though, of being a servant that Paul appeals to. He is asking Philemon, a man who clearly was taking risks for the gospels, for the gospel by, by having the church in his home. A man who clearly was financially supporting Paul. A man who clearly had, had ministered by giving food and shelter to others. In verses 10 through 17 of this text, that is all that Paul appeals to. Look, I know your history of serving, so here, take another loss, serve me in this way. Now, I want you to understand what finally his options were here. Onesimus shows up. He has run away. We know that he's stolen something. Now, Philemon's options here were to have him jailed, obviously. He also could have had his forehead branded that would have said thief and and released Onesimus, and Onesimus would have never worked again. 
He also, uh, because of the legal, uh, the legal situation at the time, if Onesimus had returned home and he had decided to beat the man within an inch of his life, there would probably have been zero social consequences and very, very limited legal consequences. But Paul's saying, set all that aside. Serve me, serve Onesimus. Now, I often use this as a spot. I'll come to this text often to talk to people about how they can grow in their spiritual life. Because if there is anybody who has poured out for the sake of Christ, it is Philemon. And you can imagine, if you've ever been robbed, whether whether at gunpoint or not, but if you've ever had something taken from you, there's an embarrassment to it. But not only that, there is this social reality between Philemon and Onesimus. What Paul is asking of Philemon is, is actually so much more than he has already done. But what is the basis by which Paul can ask this? Well, we know this, we know what it is from other texts, and we know that what? All privilege and blessing come from who? From who? From God. All of it comes from him. We know, we talked about this several weeks ago. It is God who builds. It is God who tears down. He is the one who is the source of all blessing and the source of all privilege. Dr. Tony Evans takes that reality and applies it, I think, wisely to the concepts of racial reconciliation. He brings up the fact that the American church, upon the arrival of the first Atlantic slave ship, the American church had an opportunity. And the opportunity was, as those men and women and children got off those boats, for the church to respond by making sure and affirming the dignity those people had. And the primary way they could have done this was, become, was by becoming servants to those who called them master. They could have upended the the slave trade generations before it finally happened by simply being willing to serve those that were expected to serve them. And that comes back to what we have talked about. When it comes to privilege and blessing provided by the Lord, he has three commands for us. The first one is to give thanks. To praise him and thank him for the privilege and blessings in your life. The second thing to do is to protect the weak, widows and orphans, those at the margins. And the third thing he tells us to do, if we are people of privilege and blessing, is to be spent and to spend for the furtherance of righteousness. Some of you this morning grew up in a home with a mom and dad that loved you. And not only that, a mom and dad who made sure that you were introduced to Christ at an early age. That is privilege and blessing. And so therefore, you have an obligation to give thanks for it. But you also have an obligation to use it to serve those who perhaps did not have what you had. And you have an obligation then to take what you have been given and pass it along to spread righteousness. You have an obligation, if you are a person like Philemon, of privilege and blessing, you have an obligation to give thanks, protect the weak, spread the gospel. In other words, become a master that serves. And then number three, 
The last person here on Isimus, a servant lifted. A servant lifted. Now, the name Onesimus means to be useful, but by the wordplay in verse 11, there seems to be some sarcasm to that name, that, that Onesimus was perhaps a, a lazy servant. We can piece together the story of what happened here, as I've mentioned, that though here's Onesimus, he's a, a, a bonded slave to Philemon, decides that he's not going to stick around, steals uh, either an item of value or a number of items of value, and, and, and tries to hightail it out of there. Now, on his way out of there, likely on his way to Rome, he encounters Paul. and some, we, we don't know uh, what happened, but somehow, way, the two of them end up together. Paul shares the gospel. Onesimus is saved. Onesimus, as Paul mentions here, becomes a part of Paul's ministry, begins to serve Paul. Paul, at this point, is in jail. Maybe uh, Onesimus was nothing more than a gopher. Hey, go get me this, go get me that. But at some point, Paul realized his legal obligation to send Onesimus back to Philemon. So he dies with this letter. Appealing to Philemon not only to, to forgive the financial cost, not only to, uh, to recognize Onesimus as a slave, not only to set aside the embarrassment that he has experienced, but to welcome this man back as a brother. Paul describes Onesimus as his child, his heart, his brother. He says to Philemon, don't welcome him back as a servant, welcome him back as a brother. Don't just forgive the man, make him your brother. And so we see the story compel here. A slave becomes a thief, suddenly equal to his master, and set free. This is the power of the gospel. This is gospel reconciliation, the dissolving of the prejudices of both men, the breaking down of natural barriers. Now, we don't know what happened after this in detail. However, we have a good idea. Because in 107 AD, a man by the name of Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. He was writing a number of letters. He was on his way to be killed uh, for the sake of the gospel. But he was writing a number of letters to churches. wrote one particularly to the church in Ephesus. And in that letter, he begins to praise their pastor. A man by the name of Onesimus. And quotes right out of verse 11 in Philemon. A man who once was useless now becomes useful. A slave, having become a bishop. The story of Onesimus gives us the full shape how the gospel impacts relationships. We see in the text here, uh, he says, in the Lord or in Christ, as these men are bound together by the blood of Christ. Paul does not reach for the hammer of authority, but instead the, the sword of love, because him and Philemon are in Christ. Philemon is encouraged to set aside everything and to welcome and rejoice over Onesimus' new life in Christ. Well, one man had authority and another man had privilege and blessing and another one, a servant, all found themselves standing level before God. John Perkins has been a voice of racial reconciliation for nearly 60 years. And he always will tell the story about how the gospel reshaped his relationships. He moved away from Mississippi at the age of 16 because he had been on the receiving end of every form of racism. 
He had even experienced a beating at hands of men who were supposed to protect him just because he was black. And he would tell you that his whole life at that point was just driven by hatred. He hated white people. He got married and hated white people. He had children and he hated white people. Then at number at age 27, he became a Christian and guess what? He hated white people. He admits that he and many of his African American brothers do not deal deal well with the anger they they have over the abuses they have experienced. But he says over the course of his time as a Christian, slowly but surely, the gospel penetrated deeper and deeper into his life. The message of Christ helped him confess his anger, grab hold of his fears. And like I said, for the last 60 years, he has crisscrossed this country trying to tell people it will not be social programs. It will not be cultural upheaval. But racial reconciliation will only happen through the power of the gospel of Christ. We learned in Acts 17 that we are all of one blood genetically. But the point here is that we are made one blood by the blood of Christ. The gospel is is meant to be a type of leaven. It is meant to slowly infiltrate society, and this approach requires faith. It requires an exercise of faith for someone with authority to give a hand of mercy. It requires faith for somebody with privilege and blessing in their life to to spend and be spent to the point that they might put themselves into poverty. It is an act of faith to be a servant and to be content with where you are and not become bitter to in what has happened to you. It is only the gospel that has the ability to peacefully subvert evil institutions, systems, in relationships and take them till they're stone cold dead. Three men, very different places in history and society, become entangled in each other's lives. The distinctions do not disappear. In fact, their distinctions become powerful demonstrations of God in their own way. The Bible's filled with these distinctions men and women, kings and slaves, rich and poor, young and old. But the power that unites them together is the power of the blood. It is the power of the blood of Christ that is able to make enemies into friends. It is able to bind up families. It is able to bring together neighbors. And it will be the, the gradual destruction of racial hostility. But we must have the faith to trust it. It is the wisdom of God. And it will be the answer to this problem. It will be what destroys these barriers. It will be what brings down the conflict. The power of the reconciling, uh, the reconciliation power of the gospel by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father. As we look at these things and we learn from them, Lord, I pray that you would give us more confidence in the power of the gospel to reconcile these situations. The power to to lay down authority and reach out with hands of mercy and grace 
the power to take our privilege and blessing and spend it for the protection of the weak and the spread of righteousness. Or the, the power of the gospel to take our distinctions and use them to magnify the character of God. We thank you, Father, that the blood of Christ, the, the message of the gospel, has the power to do such things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your hymnals and stand with me. Turn to page 778. 778 as we close the service today.